0: You're listening to Reach, Teach, Talk with Nat day
1: I'm here today with Robert Chip Williams, who is a, gosh, I think three decades long teacher. Let's just say that, right? Um, who is here to talk about the soulful elements of teaching, the really looking at teaching as a growth profession, not necessarily through hierarchy and titles. It is a growth profession within a profession that can encourage personal growth and it falls under the realm of the chapter time to be authentic in my book time to teach time to reach in which chip is profiled and really chip i thought of you immediately when i was thinking about this episode because uh in our conversations in the past about how teaching has influenced you as you've grown through your adult years It's just the way you speak of the job, the way you speak of it, not as a job, actually, but as something that you benefit from as much as your students do. Mm -hmm. Um, I I really wanted to get you on this podcast because you can speak so beautifully of what it feels like to be a teacher, what teachers really do. And Mm -hmm. remembering that, you know, everybody feels like they know what teachers do because we've all gone to school, right? Right. Right. But – there's a lot more under the surface and the human relational elements of teaching uh, that that you bring to the classroom, whether it's in the United States, whether it's abroad, I'll have you kind of share where you've taught because that also has informed who you are as a person. But it's all about your, your ongoing view of life as an ongoing um, position of growth and my questions are really going to be about how you find teaching to promote your own growth as an authentic human being, how your students have helped you to grow, what you think when you see yourself and your students, and also maybe also how environment has um, helped you and maybe hindered you uh, in your own personal growth as well. Mm-hmm. Environment being school environment, location where you've lived. Again, you've taught in the U.S. and abroad. So Chiv, I would love first just to say um, welcome, and to have you, and to also have you kind of share in a nutshell what's your journey, your teaching journey been. Where did it start? Where are you now? And how have you, when you think about yourself as an early teacher, how have you changed um, to where you to where you are now? Well, it's very interesting because as you
0: were asking me about the growth and trajectory of my journey as a teacher, I remember when I was still a student uh, in college, it was the early 80s, and uh, fashion was a very big thing, supermodels were a big thing, and I remember getting a lot of flattery when I was a younger man about, oh my God, you should be a model, you should be a model, you know, and I, I really, that like really fed my ego, and I decided I wanted to be a model, right? And... Modeling didn 't pan out for me, but then I got involved in TV production and behind the scenes and that was that was not working out for me either I, I came up against so many egos, uh, big egos and uh, a life a, a career vision that was not something that I thought really resonated with who I was at my core. And I remember deciding that I had already been on TV, I had been a model, I had traveled around the world, and perhaps it was time for me to give something back rather than expect something more from the universe, from life. About how old were you at this time? By this time, I was 26, 27. And my mother, my mother had seen me struggling in Hollywood. I was a reader for this production company. I was a runner for Dino De Laurentiis. I would pick up his daughter's car at the harbor and go to Bank of America and deposit $70,000 in cash that he gave me in a pouch. And I had a lot of odd jobs in Hollywood. And my mother was going crazy with, you know, you need benefits. (laughs) You you need a regular job. And she took me to lunch one day and said, son, I'm your mother. And I believe that I know you very well. And you're a teacher. And I said, no way. There's, I'm I'm not going to be a teacher. No. You know, I just, I had, I had other visions for my life. And even if Hollywood wasn't working out, certainly
1: I wasn't going to be, you know, in a classroom somewhere. Well, let's break this down for a second. Mm-hmm. If I don't, What what went through your head? Like, what did being a teacher connote when you were 26, 27 in a very different stage of your life? Mm-hmm. Governmental buildings with that
0: Pepto-Bismol or sort of strange green colored structures and, and those old steam furnaces and, uh, you know, heaters in the classroom and long hours of, uh, you know, pencil shavings and uh, worksheets and things like Mimeograph that. machines. Exactly. <laughs> right? I, I remember the smell of those. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. So all of the sort of a staid, um, sort of a matronly uh, profession. And it just didn't
1: vibe with, you know, where I thought I was going in my life. So this idea of, of the, the role of a teacher being in an environment that is staid, mm-hmm. that is, unchanging, mm-hmm. concrete. That's exactly right. Right? That's Heavy. Institutional. Right? Institutional. Institutional. Exactly. Certainly not a place where growth and flourishing for Chip Williams, uh, you know. Didn't look that way. Did not look that way. Didn't look that way at all. So.
0: So I'm probably jumbling time a little bit. So when I, when I was a younger 20-something, I, I wanted to be a model. I want, and then I thought, you know, I should be in front of the camera. Then I wound up behind the camera. And uh and then you know at 26 27 my mother took me to lunch and said i really think you're a teacher at heart and i i balked at that and she said just just take the c-best exam do it for me i'll pay for it and so do it for me i i i I took i took the c-best exam i didn't study for it and you know like a, a week or two later i was very frustrated on my on one of my odd jobs in hollywood and I loaded up my car and I drove north to figure out what I was going to do with my life, and I was in the middle of the redwood forest in the middle of the night, along the just close to the California Oregon border, when it occurred to me, as I said before, that I had experienced all these things that most people don't experience. I'd been uh, on an album cover. I had been uh, on a David Bowie album cover. Um, I been an extra on TV shows. I had traveled uh, extensively at that point in my life also. And it occurred to me that maybe it was time for me to give back. And so for a number of miles in the middle of night, I was asking, well, how do I give back? And teaching came to mind. When I reached Seattle, uh, I called my family to tell them that I had uh, successfully gotten to Uh, Washington. And my father said, well, your C-best results came and hope you don't mind. But we took the liberty of opening them. You passed the test. We called our friends at the Pasadena Unified School District. And, you know, you just have to come down here and get fingerprinted and have a real job. (laughs) So it was like, oh, confirmation. This is what I should be doing. So I I was an emergency substitute for a number of years because I, I wasn't quite uh sure that that's what I wanted to do teaching was what I wanted to do as a long-term career um, but the first thing I learned as a teacher I was very intimidated I I was uh I was uh thrown into a classroom with some books and sort of like throwing a kid into a pool and saying swim you know I had had no previous training and I had these little cha-cha girls, seventh-grade cha-cha girls, who came in and sat down with big hair and makeup, and I was like, "Oh my God!" I'm, you know, I, I was a little, "Who are they?" Like, I, I don't know who these kids are. And they taught me how to teach. You know, I learned how to teach from my students. I feel like I had it within myself, uh, but they had to pull it out of me. Also dealing with my middle-class assumptions about life. Uh, I was placed in a school in East Los Angeles, um, a feeder feeder junior high. It fed into Garfield High School, which is the school where uh, the movie Stand and Deliver uh, was was set. You know, true story. So that population. And, you know, I... I learned that my middle-class upbringing was just one piece of a puzzle of American society and that other people did not, you know, even though I'm a person of color, I am a privileged person of color in in a way that uh, I had not appreciated before, Uh, and here were kids who uh, might not have a surface in their home to do their homework on. There might be Three or four families living in a one-family apartment. Um, just you know mom and dad had a fight last night, and now my mother and I are living in the car. Uh, we live in a garage, Mr. Williams. There's no place for me to do my homework. All of these things were my education as a young teacher, and they changed me, you know. You go.
1: had to be open to the education that your students were bringing you. I mean, Absolutely. it's so interesting because the way you kind of built up to this um, this uh, trans- career transformation for you was you were coming from a place of what can I gain? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, where can I travel to next? What TV show or movie or film project can I get on? Um, what uh, script or can I can I try to get produced? All of that. And then it hit you, and I love the idea of you driving up to Seattle and having this kind of road trip by night and just kind of coming to a realization that you do want to give back. You had to be in that open place. Yes. In order to start learning from your students. It's the school of life, but it's the school of life for the teacher. Absolutely. And where the students become the teacher. But let me ask you this. It implies incorrectly that it means that your students kind of drove the ship, and that they, uh, con- in a sense, controlled the classroom. But that's not what you're necessarily talking about, I don't think. No, we're no, not talking about instruction not, no. and curriculum. We're talking about you. Yeah. So can you give an example of a student who maybe had an influence on you, who would never know, and maybe it's, I don't know, I won't, I won't paint stereotypes, but a student who, one of the earlier students who really kind of opened you up to the man that you were becoming,
0: there was a kid named Bronco. And he was this tough character. He he looked like a gangbanger. He had the pressed khakis and the pressed t-shirt and uh gold chain and a medallion and he talked like this. Hey, Williams. Williams, you know, just this, you know, really macho little kid. <laughs> and uh he presented as a tough guy, you know, but he would come to me during lunch, and sometimes he'd come to my classroom after school, and he'd say, Hey, Williams, who's that Buddha guy? What's Buddha? What does that mean? Tell me about Buddha. And so I talked to him about the Buddha and how, how, uh, the Buddha, his, his name was not buddha but that's a title that means the awakened one and i talked about uh the eightfold path and you know suffering and and an end of suffering and and whatnot and he took such great interest in that that i felt like wow i this was my personal knowledge that was valuable to someone else you know and one summer and i i don't recommend other teachers do this i was a very young teacher one summer he Called 411 and found my phone number and uh, asked me, What are you doing? You know, let's go do something. You know, this is uh, the summer between middle school and high school, or junior high and high school for him. And I wound up uh, picking him up and some of the other kids. He lived in the projects, and we went bike riding on Redondo Beach uh, Boardwalk. Uh, we went hiking in Eaton Canyon in Pasadena. Um, I gave him driving lessons and I also gave him the book, uh, The Prophet by Khalil Gibran, right? Years later, he went on to Garfield High School. Um, and what I'm, what I'm getting at here is that with Bronco, I, I began to see that my personal interests, the person I am, had a value for, for the students it wasn 't just the instruction and years later, years and years later, I was leaving leaving the apartment of uh, someone I had been going out with, and I got in my car and uh, started the ignition and my cell phone rang. this is the age of cell phones now and I pick up the phone and Hey, Williams, this is uh, Bronco. And he said, You remember me? And I said, Of course I remember you. Now, I, I think about 20 years had gone by. And he said, Well, I called, I called, you know, and your old number. I talked to your mother. She gave me your cell phone number. And he said, I'm a teacher now. I teach at Garfield High School. And I have relationships with my students, and they graduate. And I wonder where they are. I care about them, and I wonder what happened to them. And I realize that you probably have those same thoughts, too. And I thought I should tell you where I am and what I'm doing now. And he went on to tell me that the time I took to talk to him about the questions he had outside of the curriculum, the time I took to uh, uh, take him and the kids in his neighborhood bike riding and things like that, those things kept him off the street and reoriented his life, he said. He said, my friends were out, other friends were out gangbanging, getting in jail, you know, put in jail. And I was learning how to drive and hiking and going to the beach and reading The Prophet. And he said, I still keep that book and I read it from time to time. So I thought I should thank you for that. So that, that was a very meaningful relationship. And there are others like that.
1: Unbelievable. And that's such a powerful story in that he took the he was resourceful enough he also the to find you to twenty years or so later. Yeah. And what he what he thanked you for though, Chip, was it's it's so deep because he was thanking you for your time. Yes. And it was time outside of the classroom, but I, I'm thinking that it was also the time inside of the classroom. As well, yes. Where you spent building a relationship with this student, Bronco, mm-hmm. and others. But in this case Bronco, that a student so different from you mm-hmm. yet somebody who you found a way to connect with in a very powerful way and then it extended outside of the classroom. Let me ask you were you thinking that you were being a hero teacher? Not at all. No. What, I mean, what were you thinking when you went, you know, you took him to Redondo Beach and you taught him driving lessons and hiking in Pasadena. Like what was were you thinking I am taking him off the streets and I'm being heroic? Or? No,
0: I that wasn't the intention. I you know, the the interesting thing about it is that I also needed in a certain respect to uh, come out of myself. I I can be sort of um, I get lost in my thoughts and my thoughts can be uh, not really destructive, but it's like I I can live inside my head. And for this young person to call me out of myself and into the world and into life was a good thing for me. Mm. Um, So. I wasn't thinking, I'm going to be a hero teacher with this person. I'm going to help him. I'm going to change his life. It just sort of happened that way. And it unfolded organically, which, you know, he initiated that, really. I mean, he initiated that. But I was present. And I think being present, being available, uh, is part of the authenticity uh, that I've learned to bring to teaching, to be to be open, you know, you, you have your personal boundaries, obviously, but to be open to students who are looking looking for more than just the curriculum, you know. And even through the curriculum, when you're when you're teaching curriculum, you can bring your personal uh, feelings or experience uh, around certain issues in history, for example, uh, if you're talking about the civil rights movement, you know there was there. I lived through that with a child's perspective, you know, and that had an effect on me. And I, I watched things change in society through my my youth, and I can talk about that in an authentic way, you know. So the 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 openness and the willingness to talk about one's personal relationship to curriculum and to uh, questions that come up in the classroom builds a bond and a, a sense that you know, kids can trust you or come to you. Um, so it's not, it's, it's not really uh, that I'm going to save someone, but I'm going to be present for them. You know, that, I think that's the most important thing, and being present for one, seeing those connections, not being you know, too caught up in other
1: things. So in order to be present as a teacher in the classroom, you must have to have an approach to the curriculum and the instruction that is, in a sense, placing the human element first, putting relationships even ahead of the content. Not, is not the same as saying, throw the content out the no, window no, no, and no. let's all play get-to-know-you games for the whole 180 days of the school year. Bring it to life but you bring it to life. And I guess like the teacher terms are, you know, you find ways to engage the students and also you, you find ways to make relevant right. what you're teaching. Yet in hearing you, it's more personal than that. You are telling stories that are lived experiences of yours, right. knowing full well that kids hook into authentic right. human, um, mm. you know, experiences. And if you're telling a story about civil rights movement as a 10-year-old, uh, you know, witnessing this or that, They will listen and lean in because you are telling something, you're revealing something of yourself, and there's Mm -hmm. a psychology behind that that is absolutely true. We are social beings, and learning right, right? learning is cognitive, emotional, Mm -hmm. and social. So, all to say, where where do you find do you find there to be a challenge as a teacher then when you are being told from those on high you must cover this curriculum, but you know that in order to do that really effectively, you need to kind of transmit it in a personalized way you know
0: it can be seen as a challenge but in my experience I I I'm charged with teaching these points Uh, there's a there's a curriculum there's scope and sequence there's a test you know all these things need to be covered so what I've learned through my experience is that as long as I am covering what needs to be covered and as long as I'm assessing and seeing that the kids are getting what needs to be covered, then I have the liberty to 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 present it and bring it to life in whatever way seems feasible and, and, and natural, really. More than feasible, natural. Uh, I often find that uh you know we're we're kind of tied to the textbook to the chapter but then uh an idea will spark and i'm drawing on the on the whiteboard and the conversation becomes more enlivened because there's a there's a point in this chapter in this particular paragraph that i connect to or connects to something that just happened on the playground and you know we can make that connection and so there's there's flexibility you know i think i think you have to trust yourself you have to trust yourself to know what the curriculum is and know what needs to be covered and then to a certain degree improvise with your presentation Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. i remember one uh I should probably say that most of my career I've taught uh, middle school mm-hmm. and and so that's that's the age range we're talking about um, and I remember once teaching uh ancient civilization and uh I had the kids break into groups or I put them in groups and had a lot of uh you know butcher paper spread mm-hmm. out mm-hmm. in these different groups, and each student in each group was to uh, design their own little kingdom and, and, a part of that butcher paper. And, you know, is there a river? What kind of, what kind of crops do you raise? Where are the villages? This kind of thing. And then we started talking about empire, you know, and how, you know, one, one kingdom takes over other kingdoms and then the other kingdoms pay tribute and whatnot. And to, to make this uh, a little more equitable, I just put for in in each group I put the names of each child in the group in an envelope and then you know blindfolded picked a name out and then this this person this person's kingdom takes over the other kingdoms and and that's the empire mm-hmm. right and so that went well with every group and then I got to let's say group 5 and I took the group 5 envelope and opened it up and reached in there and well where are all the names there was only one there was only one piece of paper and i pulled it out and i said aiden what's this and he said that's how empires are won mr williams oh so awesome. <laughs> he had gone into my desk <laughs> at lunch and Devious. you know and i said wow, you know, don't do that again. But I use that kind of as a teaching point. It's like there, there is corruption in some totally. of this political stuff. And, and it, was, it was an interesting teaching point, yep. you know. Yep. Um, and I've never forgotten that. And so <laughs> so we went with that, you know, and, and talked about how uh, there's intrigue and cheating and these kinds of things. That, and there's certainly students learn that from Game of Thrones today.
1: <laughs> and, well, from your classroom years back, I mean, yeah. Aiden, you remember yeah. Aiden for yeah. that, and and I'm thinking about kids now and the kids that you know you've taught and mm-hmm. and the kids you've taught in L.A., kids you've taught. You also taught in Turkey. Yes, um, is there any difference between middle school age kids, you know, in California versus?
0: College kids in Turkey? <laughs> yeah, I guess college kids in Turkey. Okay, yeah, I, were college I, I kids. Taught, in Turkey. I taught uh, at the university level in Turkey.
1: And and I don't know. I mean, or maybe 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 that's not a fair question then, since we were different ages. But mm-hmm. I did, think there's a different
0: culture around yeah. education and how the teachers uh, regarded. I'm how, not sure how teachers are. Yeah. So, um, a teacher is respected in society in Turkey in a way that we are not here um, like there's you know there there's some sense in the United States that uh, you know a person who teaches has settled in a way for a career that um, is not um, very lucrative a lot of people think it doesn't demand very much of you intellectually which is completely false
1: um, also just not to interrupt but Teaching is a stage profession in concrete exactly. buildings right. and right. everything that you thought of. And your mom said I, I, you should be a teacher. I think a lot of a
0: lot of people who look at teachers they they think of their experience as a student looking at a teacher sitting at a desk and maybe like maybe it's uh, not very challenging. But they don't see what goes on behind the scenes, or and there are different kinds of teachers anyway. But. In Turkey, a teacher is respected like like we respect doctors here in the United States. Um, you you walk out of your apartment building in the morning, and the grocer across the street says "Hocam nasilsin," just you know addresses you as teacher with mm-hmm. respect. Mm-hmm. Uh, once people know that you are a teacher, they address you as teacher, you know, uh, respectfully. So in society, you have a um, You have a sense of being respected more, which feels good. You know, it's a a nice feeling like uh, I I am a valued member of society here. And I think we get that lip service in the United States. Oh, I think teachers are doing the hardest job. I think teachers are doing – you're doing the real work.
1: Teacher Appreciation Day.
0: Yeah, that kind of thing. Uh, But we don't see that in terms of uh, – Compensation in terms of uh, just the fact, the very fact that there are teacher discounts and you know that kind of thing tells you that society does not value us in a certain way.
1: What is what's the name? Uh, sorry, what's the name given to a teacher when you walk well, out the door? Well, the, the it,
0: word the word for teacher is hoja. Ho-ja. But hojam means my teacher. So, so you're addressed as my teacher. Hojam my teacher.
1: And when, when you say that it's through respect, it's a respectful um, approach to teachers, what, what is it that they are respecting? Is it he holds the student test scores high or no, is it no, it's, what, it's your what service is... to society that, that you're an integral
0: part of the social function of, of raising children, of raising the nation, frankly. Uh, you, you are, uh, respected for participating in our children's lives and doing what we can't do for them because we have to work. just, just, you know, you are raising our children. You're raising, you're raising the nation basically and educating the nation. And so education is, you know, highly regarded. And then also your role as an educator in the lives of the children of the nation, Whereas we hear a lot of rhetoric here about schools being, uh, you know, teachers are not, uh, those teachers aren't teaching and kids aren't learning anything, blame the teacher for, you know, the low test scores um, without really reflecting on what's happening at home, what's happening in the greater society. Uh, There's, I think, it's like apples and oranges in a way because You know, America is a unique nation, just as Turkey is. But we have so much other going on outside of the classroom here in our country. And I feel very little self-reflection as a society uh, on uh, what children are exposed to and how much they... Life is so fast outside of the classroom, and there, there there are so many advertisements and so much entertainment coming at them at all times. And then we ask them to come into the classroom and focus and concentrate and attend to a textbook, or nowadays uh, you, know, you might have a laptop. But we ask them to come to a screeching halt in a certain respect and be attentive in a way that nothing else in life uh, asks of them. So there's this resistance, and I don't know what the answer is because technology certainly isn't going away, um, but there has to be some kind of balance in our society where where um, education meets technology where it is, but also... Uh, families, families understand their role in, in, in educating as well.
1: Why is it important for families to understand their role?
0: Because most of the child's time is spent with the family, not, not in the school. And I had a, you know, I had a parent once, I had a boy who would, um, You know, we're not, we don't do everything in the school. We're not responsible for completely raising the child. I had a parent once, and there are different iterations of this kind of situation, where a boy would hack up phlegm in the classroom and spit it on the floor. And I, Justin, you know, that's, that's unacceptable. That's disgusting. Clean that up. And he would continue to do it. I'd call home. There was no home phone. One day the mother arrived at school to take him to the dentist, and I said, I'm so glad you're here. I've been trying to reach you. Justin has a habit of spitting on the floor, and he seems to think that's okay. Would you, this is seventh grade, would you please have a talk with him about hygiene and why that's not a good idea? And the woman looked at me and said, "Hygiene? you're the teacher. That's your job. <laughs> and this is an English class, right? So, and that that's one pretty extreme example, but there we're expected to be a psychologist, social worker, all all kinds of roles we play, which we do. But parental time uh, is is even more important, obviously, mm-hmm. than you know what's happening in the classroom in terms of turning the kids on to education, making education a priority in the in the home, reading that mm-hmm. kind of thing.
1: So with the added pressures on teachers to be the psychologist, to be the coach, to be the parent, loco parentis, mm-hmm. um, to be the guardian, to be the um, you know kind of the minister, the priest as mm-hmm. well. What keeps you in the game year after year? And I know that you've taken on different roles in schools. But what is it that just keeps you in this field, in in this teaching field? What does it give back to you still? I think about that often. Um,
0: Because sometimes I feel like there may be something else I'd like to do with my life at this stage in my life. But when I have, on occasion, twice I've left teaching to do something else, Uh, and it's been teaching in a different form, you know. When my dad died the first day of school, uh, wow, 21 years ago, 21 years ago today. Today. Yeah. Yeah. and my principal took me into the office and said, hey, you know, you've had a tough few months. And if, if you want to take some time off, you want to take a semester off, you know, totally understand. I decided to take that time off. Um, and I worked for Tree People, a reforestation agency, and I was, I was doing uh, planting training, training people how to plant trees, do re- reforestation. And that was meaningful work. And then another time, years later, I was offered a position in Baltimore, uh, taking meditation into the schools in Baltimore. And uh, I thought that that would be something I'd like to do. The salary was much higher than what I was making as a teacher. Hmm. Um, But what I found in each situation was that I missed working with the kids, I missed the relationship, I missed watching them grow, the interaction. There is something alchemical that takes place in the classroom.
1: Can you define alchemical for the audience?
0: Where, where one element acts on another element and there's transformation that takes place. Uh, one of the principles of alchemy is there's, there was believed to be a philosopher's stone which could turn lead into gold, right? Right. And so the search was, there was a search for the philosopher's stone. And our, our modern-day chemistry actually has, has evolved from alchemy. If You'll see in alchemy is the, the root chem. Um, so it's the, it's the notion that one thing acts on another and there's a beneficial transformation that takes place. And so in the classroom... There is the interaction of the teacher and students, the students and teacher, and there is a transformation that takes place in each life. I, I love the, uh, the engagement with humanity that takes place in the classroom. Every September, the doors open, and here in the United States, America comes in and sits down for 10 months. And, or, or, you know, a a piece of America and a piece of humanity. And I interact with those young people and have some, some exchange with them, which moves them along in their lives. And also I am nourished by, by their presence. You know, there's, there's a, a sense of family, uh, uh, there's that kind of agape uh, on on my part at least the, this love for them because they're they're young human beings who are worthy of being loved you know so it's an open acceptance uh, and that doesn't take place has not taken place in in corporate environments for me.
1: My last question relating mm-hmm. to how you promote agape and how you promote a um, an alchemic uh, relationship between you and the students, and the students and you, as the adult in the room, as a teacher. How? What would you? What advice would you give for teachers? What's like the, or at least what's the one focus that you think is most important in communicating to your students through a classroom ethos that you create as the teacher, and your students walk into? Mm-hmm. What's one element of that classroom ethos that you think is not is absolutely essential, non-negotiable. this is essential for healthy positive relational learning. So I have a
0: yogic background, which means a yogic philosophical background, not not hatha yoga um, and you know some people don't believe in God and you don't have to believe in God to have this uh outlook because we don't know what even even for people who believe in God, what does that mean? What is God? We use the term consciousness uh, for God because it's it's not an anthropomorphic uh being out there somewhere. it's this this conscious energy which unfolds and creates and becomes and has been doing that all along. And it's to understand that the consciousness looking out of my eyes is the consciousness looking out of every other pair of eyes. There's one consciousness that has unfolded in in countless ways in every form that is alive. And it's it's, if you can imagine a chrysanthemum, that just keeps unfolding petals after petals after petals and and it's all 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 blooming from one stem but each petal is different and each child in your classroom is another yourself another myself and I, I look in their eyes and I understand that there is a complex set of emotions and thoughts and conditioning that has produced the behavior, the mindset of this particular person, but all of that is sort of swirling around this core that is no different than my own consciousness, my own self. Uh, And so to see myself in, in the other, to see myself, to see oneself, my advice to another teacher would be to see yourself in the eyes of your student and understand that what they need from you is your best. You, 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 they need to be watered and they need to be shined upon as if you were the sun to grow. The sun, the sun doesn't care if you are a bank robber or a prostitute or a priest or the president of the United States. It shines on all the same. The rain shines. The rain pours on everyone the same, regardless of who they are. The teacher needs to be as impartial as the sun and the rain, as well. Um, another thing I would say is that you know, you may be fifty-eight years old, you may be thirty-five years old, but within you, there's still a seventeen-year-old. Within you, there's still a thirteen-year-old, and you can be in touch with that 13-year-old and relate to the 13-year-old in front of you while being the adult, but also understanding. You can, you can be in the shoes of the child while standing in your shoes at the same time, and try not to forget that.
1: Beautiful. It's the ultimate empathy. And it's the uh, expression be the adult you needed when you were young. Exactly. I, that came to mind, but I couldn't <laughs> put it in my. I was like, how does that go? <laughs> in, in short. Yeah. But I liked your definition yeah. really beautifully articulated better. <laughs> yeah. um, teaching as a growth profession, teaching as a spirited profession, teaching as a generative profession, mm-hmm. alchemical. Mm-hmm. Is that the word? Alchemy? Alchemical. Alchemical. Mm-hmm. It's an alchemical profession turning. Um, stone into gold, or what the material was into something beautiful. The teaching being a constant profession, you are constantly being called upon to be that son, that giver of regenerator of life force to intellectual life force and emotional to the students Mm -hmm. in your classroom. All of this is what teachers really do. And having you on this show today has helped, I think, Anybody listening and watching to expand their view on what teaching really is. And when you were saying earlier, you know, there's all the additionals that you're responsible for as a teacher, and as in, in having taught in Turkey and then come back to what must have been kind of a rough adjustment for a period yeah. to the US, where teachers are the first to be praised until they're the first to be blamed. Mm-hmm. Um, they're not being paid enough, their class sizes are too large they're not getting enough time off because there's professional development and they just mm-hmm. don't have that time for reflection. Mm-hmm. It's unsustainable overall, and it's no wonder we are facing a shortage of teachers. Hopefully, after listening to this conversation, people who may have thought about getting into teaching, who have this two-dimensional view of what teaching is, is are finding it to be broadened. I certainly have. Right. Right? I mean, I've been elevated by this conversation. Oh, that's good. So if, I'll leave you with a final word, Chip, but I'm just so grateful for you to be on the show today. Thank you. A final word. That's uh
0: or story. Well, uh, I think as a final word, I would offer that being a teacher is a lesson in your own humanity. Uh you are called upon to be selfless in a way that, uh, that unfolds you and shows you more about yourself than most other things could. Um, I would encourage people who feel a call to teach but, but say to themselves, well, you know, I, my social status, it's not the income that I'd like to have. I'd like to encourage you to understand that there are other rewards that come from teaching that are priceless. And once you taste those rewards, money doesn't matter so much.
1: Beautiful. And I have a book here actually that I thought about when you were just giving those beautiful words about the call to teach. And this is a classic Parker Palmer courage to teach
0: mm-hmm. and
1: courage being about, you know, facing your fear and having the, the bravery to teach truly, which is about the spiritual, soulful, you know, mm-hmm. everything we've been talking about the bravery, but also the word courage coming from the heart mm-hmm. core. And uh, that being the key of what right. being fearless is, is, you right. know, if you're operating with your heart forward, Mm-hmm. Then you will you will be victorious. That's right. And clearly, you are a teacher who has the courage to teach. <laughs> and uh, I just again thank you for being on the show, Chip. Thank you.